Well, ever have one of those terrible, horrible, no good, very bad days? <laughs> Me too, right? I actually had one of those recently, or at least an afternoon. Um, now, many of you know that I go up to visit my mom quite frequently. Uh, she lost her husband almost two years ago, and she doesn't drive, so basically I'm her personal Uber. And I go up to Seal Beach, where she lives, pretty much every week. And uh, just about a month ago, I was on my way from her house back home, and I was probably not even a mile from her house, and I came to the intersection of Seal Beach Boulevard and Westminster. If you're familiar with that, it's a very large intersection, lots and lots of traffic. Well, I was stopped at a red light, and I was in the number three lane, and out of the corner of my eye, I saw the people in the number one lane, and the people in the number two lane both pull out. You know, the light turned green, they pulled out, and all of a sudden I heard screech, and I heard pe saw people slam on their brakes and swerve as a car ran a red light. And so, of course, I did the same as one, two, and then I'm three, did the same. And, you know, obviously, praise the Lord, because uh, we were all able to stop in time. But it was one of those times when you have 15 cars around you, so you know this would have been really bad. This would have been a very bad accident. And I don't know if this has ever happened to you, but, you know, when someone scoots over next to you in your lane on the freeway, you're just like, oh, okay, well, I can keep going. But then occasionally, something like a traffic accident that's so close to happening, and you know it's going to be so bad, anybody just need to take a breath for a second? Okay. So I'm thinking, I'm going to get on the freeway for 45 minutes, maybe. Maybe now's not the time to do that. So I decided to get, uh, go fill up my tank with gas. I thought it'll give me five minutes just to take a breath before I get back on the freeway. So I go that, top off my tank, and I decide I wanted to send one more text before I head up, or actually head down the freeway, right? And so I pull over, and I'm in an almost deserted strip mall. And well, frankly, I was too lazy to actually pull into a parking space. So you know how there's those big, long curbs where there's one space after the other, after the other, after the other, and I know a lot of you do this too. When you're going to pull over for a minute, you just pull up perpendicular to all those spaces, kind of like the truck right outside. Sometimes you go, oh, they took up four spaces. Well, I was in a deserted strip mall, so it didn't matter, right? I did my text, push send. I'm like, awesome, okay, I'm fully stopped, and I... Whip a quick U-turn. And I whipped that quick U-turn, and all of a sudden it went bang, scrape, scrape, scrape. I'm like, wait, there's no one here. Like, literally, there's no one anywhere to be seen. And I'm like, I hit something. So I pulled into the very first parking space that I could find, which was, you know, maybe 15 feet from where I was, which happened to be the one in the pole position in front of the Carl's Jr. glass doors. So I'm literally right in front of the entrance. I hop out of the car, and in the 15 seconds it takes me to get there, my tire is completely flat. I have a hole the size of a quarter in my front right tire. Well, I've never had a flat tire before. In 40 years of driving, it's pretty good. Um, I'm married to a great husband who takes care of my cars, and uh, I'm like, what am I going to do? I have a flat tire. Hmm. Well, I can't call my mom. She doesn't drive. Like, I'm a mile from her house, but there's no help she can give me, right? I'm 45 minutes from home, and it's a Friday afternoon. And, oh, by the way, I have 25 people coming for dinner in an hour and a half to my house. I'm like, okay, hmm, what am I going to do? Well, what do we do when that happens? 
we call our husband, because I don't have AAA. Otherwise, I would have called AAA. Called my husband. Now, if you're familiar with my husband's schedule at all, <sighs> well, let's put it this way. Friday is not the day that you have a crisis, particularly Friday afternoon. I mean, I don't even text him to say anything on a Friday afternoon. I'd have to have my leg chopped off before I would text him on a Friday afternoon because that's when he's working on his sermon, right? Only this week it was even worse. Because instead of one sermon, it was revival week. He was preparing five sermons. Here comes Carla and texting, hey, I have a flat tire. <laughs> and oh, by the way, I'm not in Aliso Viejo. I'm in Seal Beach. Okay, well, he's a loving guy. There was no reprimand. There was no what you were you thinking. He hopped in his car and started up the freeway. Good guy. Well, I had to go over and to investigate. I'm thinking, where, what did I hit, right? So I ran across the little strip mall parking lot and looked. And you know how I said I'm parked up against that big long curb? Well, you know, they're trying to beautify the strip mall parking lot. So they put a, a, a median full of plants there, which is all sweet and everything, except that every four spaces, they had this cool little triangle flower bed that comes out that has like a staked tree in it. Only problem is the one that I parked up next to, it was completely invisible. I, I sure didn't see a tree in it. So that's why I ran over it. And of course, I found that everybody else did too. Because instead of a nice, smooth little curb there that I should have been able to just go over and come down and not get a quarter size hole in my tire, it was like a spike. It had been run into so many times that all the concrete had fallen off and there was like this pokey thing. So, okay, I'm stuck there. But Mike is on his way. And I'm standing there looking at my tire in front of the glass doors at Carl's Jr. when a man walks out. He goes, you have a flat tire. I'm like, yes, I do. <laughs> and I don't know what to do with it. But my husband's coming. He's just coming from a long way, so I'll be here for a little while. He says, well, let me, let me take a look at it and see if I can handle it. So he does. We pull out everything out of the back of the SUV, looking for the tire, only to find there's two little cool bolts, and all you have to do is go underneath your car and get it, but that's okay. We figured it out, we found the tools. He was able to do it for me. Whew, I got to call Mike back. He'd been on the road for 10 minutes, I got to call him back and say, you can go home, honey, thank you so much. So it was awesome and wonderful. Well, while I was watching Emilio change my tire and chatting with him, how's it going? Thanks, Emilio. Um, I said, hey, can I get you a snack? I mean, we're at Carl's Jr., right? So let me go get you some dinner. Oh, actually, it was lunch, right? Afternoon, late afternoon. He goes, no, just get me a drink. I'm like, great, awesome. So I run in, get him a drink, come back out, start to set it by his car when I noticed there was a big, fat, leather-bound book sitting on his dashboard. And it was a well-used big, fat, leather book with all the gold off the edges. And it was well-used. You could see it was all expanded. And of course, because I know what a big, fat, leather-bound book is, I was like, so because I knew it was a Bible, of course, and you're nodding, because you know it was a Bible, too. I'm like, so what church do you go to? So Amelia and I and shared this wonderful time of fellowship. As he changed my tire, this brother in Christ went out of his way when I was in need, and we got to talk about church, we got to talk about his kids, his ministry and the worship band, and how we're going to see each other in heaven someday, and um, I will see him there, but I am going to have him paint my pergola, so I will see him before that. But... Um, <laughs> As I drove home, um, I couldn't help but reflect on the blessing 
of the Lord and how I had a need and I was having a bad day. And out in that moment of need, God supplied. And he actually supplied one of my brothers in Christ to take care of me, who I never knew. And I mean, other than painting my pergola, I'll probably never see him again. And, you know, it just made me realize how God always supplies in our troubles. And as I was driving home with my little donut, my little donut spare tire, chug, 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 down the freeway, 55, stay alive, trying to get home before everybody gets to my house, right? Um, I had lots of time to reflect. And I thought about, I wonder what God even spared me of. Why did I not get on the freeway? Why did I have that, you know, near accident? I don't know. But I know God was taking care of me. He was taking care of me by keeping me safe um, and by supplying Emilio. And I realized that I should never lose heart. I should never be discouraged because it doesn't matter how dark the day is. My God is never going to leave me. He's never going to abandon me. And you know, Israel needed to know that. I mean, you studied the first two chapters. This is a very dark time. There is no bright light. I mean, we think, oh, yes, Moses. But they didn't know that. I mean, Moses wasn't a bright light for them at that time. They were just living through a lot of yucky, horrible things. They were having a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad century. Not afternoon like me. And they need to remember that God would never abandon them in that time. And you and I need to know that too. And I'm so glad we have Exodus 1 and 2 because I'm going to prove to you tonight that God was with them even when they maybe felt like he wasn't. And he will be there for you even on the days you don't think he is. He is there. So let's dig into Exodus 1 and 2. And I'm going to ask you to simply open up your Bible to Exodus 1 and 2 because that's all you're going to need tonight. Okay? Well, that and probably a pen and a lot of paper. But um, <laughs> as far as the Bible's concerned. Now, Exodus, you know, is part two of the story. We said Genesis is part one. Um, there, it ends with 12 brothers and their families. And then Exodus starts with 12 brothers and their families. Genesis ended with them in Egypt. Exodus starts with them in Egypt. Genesis ended with everything going well. Exodus starts with everything going well. And it, it almost restates it so that you know this is a continuation of the story. So you know these are the same people in the same situation that we're talking about here. And everything is good until it isn't, right? God has said he wants them to be fruitful and multiply. That was his plan for them. And he wanted to make a great nation out of them. So being fruitful and multiplying was a big part of that. Um, God was into that Pharaoh not so much, right? All of a sudden, Pharaoh, get, they get one on the throne there who doesn't know what Joseph did. But think about what Joseph did. Because of Joseph's actions, humanly speaking, of course, right? We learned that this weekend. Because of Joseph's actions, the entire world was spared from starvation. I mean, even Egypt itself was spared because of what Joseph did. And here's this king going, ah, I don't like that guy. I don't respect him, and I don't respect his God. So... He said, these people are a threat to me. They're living within our nation. And frankly, we are competing for things like food, opportunities, resources, jobs, and I don't like that. So I'm, I'm, I am going to minimize them. So he started a, basically a campaign to minimize the Israelites in his nation. He started first by conscripting them 
to build the storage facilities and cities of Egypt, which means he forced them away from their homes. He took the men from their homes and took them far away and to another place miles from home and had them build cities. So the first way that he minimized them is by keeping them from their wives. They could no longer have children if he kept them away from them physically, right? They would no longer have children. So that was his first step. Then he was cruel to them, maybe in hopes of killing some, but certainly in hopes of demoralizing them so that they would never have the will to resist the Egyptians. So he started with that. And in the first two chapters of Exodus, we immediately see one um, just glaring truth that is right in front of us, and that is that bad things happen to God's people. And that's going to be point number one. We need to expect that bad things to happen to God's people. Expect bad things to happen to God's people. Obviously, it happened to the Israelites, but it happens to you and me as well. We need to expect bad things to happen to God's people. Some of you right now are living the reality of that. Bad things are happening to you right now. You know exactly what it feels like to be in an Egypt because you live in one today. But when it happens, none of us should be surprised. God's people have repeatedly suffered. Just because we're Christians does not mean that God has exempted us from difficulty. Now, these hardships come through a variety of means. The first is things, natural things like hurricanes or bad diagnoses at the doctor. We call those natural evil. And it happens because we live on a cursed planet and frankly, because we no longer have access to the tree of life. But before we think that's a terrible thing, I want to remind you that be, because we have no access to the tree of life, we will someday leave this planet. And if you're a Christian, you'll be united with him forever in a perfect place with a perfect body. So it, it truly is a gift in the long run. But that's one way bad things, one reason bad things happen on this planet. Another reason for our suffering is because we are God's kids directly. And Jesus said, they persecuted me, they will persecute you. So sometimes hardships happen because you're a Christian, specifically because you're being targeted. Another reason that suffering comes to us, and some of you are experiencing it, sadly, is because you've done something wrong. And kindly... God is a good father who is disciplining you and giving you some consequences to get you back on a path to doing what is good and right. So there's natural things. There's persecution and there's discipline. But there's also a fourth way, and this is the one that is happening to the Israelites here. Sometimes, and this one's frankly pretty dis disconcerting, sometimes bad things happen to us just because God allows bad people to do bad things to us. He allows it. He allowed the Egyptians to enslave Israel. It's not because they did something wrong, and I'm going to prove it to you. He actually told them this was going to happen. In Genesis 15, 13, and again, you don't have to go to any of these, but in Genesis 15, 13, God is restating the Abrahamic covenant to Abraham. And if you remember anything about the book of Genesis, he restates that promise a few times. Well, this is the time when he puts um, Abraham in a deep sleep, and there's a smoking pot, and there's some animals, and there's some weird thing where they're going through the animals, whatever. This is a weird time. But in Genesis 15, 13, this is what God says. He says, I'm going to enslave you, Abraham, for 400 years. 
but I will make the country that does this to you pay. And I'm going to take you out, and when you leave, you're going to get a whole lot of their stuff. That's what Genesis 15, 13 says. It's a prophecy of what's actually happening in the chapter that, or the books that we're going to study. God planned all of this. But why would he do that? Well, let's think it through. Why was it important for this event, for them to be enslaved by Egypt? Why was it important? There are some reasons here. First of all, Abraham would eventually have one kid, right? But at the end of Genesis and the beginning of Exodus, three generations have gone by, and there's still only, well, 70 of them that went to Egypt. There was some in Egypt already. That's where we get the 75. If you saw, there was two numbers. Um, how do you take a group that is no larger than a family reunion and make a nation out of them? Well, you keep them safely inside another nation for a long, long time. They go from 75 people to 2 million. That takes a long time, and he needs to keep that nation safe for a while. That's one of the reasons, okay? How do you give them a land and then keep their enemies from going in and just squishing them when you give them that land? Well, you send a whole lot of supernatural and deadly things that we call plagues to make everybody scared of the God that is behind them. That's another thing that God had to accomplish. He had to make people scared and fearful of their God, okay? Then how do you take a bunch of headstrong individuals and get them to follow one guy who they don't really know, and actually, frankly, what they do know about him, they're not really impressed about. Um, well, you defeat the enemy together, and you watch that man take your common enemy out. And how do you finance the whole thing? You've got to finance the trip for two million people, and you've got to finance a new nation and a new worship center. Well, you get the nation that they're living within so frustrated that when they push them out the door, they open up their bank accounts and they give them a whole bunch of money. See, all of that happened because God kept them enslaved for 400 years. He had a greater, much bigger purpose. He was working a plan. But they sadly had to walk a really long ways through the valley of the shadow of death for it to be accomplished. Now, this was God's plan, but not only did he call it, but he actually walked them right up to the front door of this horrible suffering they were going to experience. In another place in Genesis, this time it's Genesis 46, verses 3 and 4, we find Jacob, and you may remember this from your DBR, Jacob is hesitant. Joseph says, come on down, Dad. Come to Egypt. We have food for you. You'll starve out there. And Jacob doesn't want to go. He's like, no, 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 I'm not going, I'm not going. In fact, it takes God coming in, stepping in and convincing him to go, and this is what God says in that passage. I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you a great nation, and I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again. Trouble is, he kind of failed to talk about that 400 years of yuckiness. But this was God's will for him. Jacob was not sinning. He was told to go down there. God took him down there on purpose. And even in the passage today, their deliverer is going to be born, and they're still going to have to wait 80 years for him to be prepared. Well, the church is all going great, so why would God do stuff like this to us? I mean, 
I get why he had to make him a nation, but why us? Well, Jesus is asked a question once in John 9, when the man is born blind, and he's asked, you know, why did this happen, basically? And Jesus answers, so that God would get glory. Now, there's a lot of ways that God can get glory, but two, I think, of the most important ones that come right to the top of my mind is God gets glory by making new Christians, and God gets glory by taking old Christians and making them more like Jesus. Those are two really simple ways that God gets more glory. And when you and I go through suffering, and some of you were in this room who went through suffering, and God used that time to drop the bottom out of your life or push you up against a wall and make you realize you have no hope but him. And you were a Christian sitting here today because God made you suffer. And he gave you no way out and you realized he is all there is. He's the only thing I should live for. Or you maybe have children or you have parents or you have neighbors who have become Christians because of that. But the other thing he does is he just basically forces all of us who are already saved to be more Christ-like because of the suffering we go through. Frank Turek said it to us the other day. He said, we learn no courage without danger, no perseverance without obstacles, no compassion without suffering, no patience without tribulation, no character without adversity, and no trust in God without need. God uses our painful situations to accomplish his purposes. This all reminds me of the headaches that we're experiencing on the I-5 right now. If you drive anywhere between Avery and Lake Forest, you know exactly what I'm talking about. There are, ah, uh, it's just like, sometimes I just feel like walking, like I should take the side streets and I should just walk or take my electric bike or something because it's just really hard on the freeway right now. Well, Mike and I were stuck in it the other day and we were reminiscing about the days 30 years ago when he used to drive up to Talbot to seminary and he'd drive up there a couple times a week. Well, 30 years ago, they were widening the I-5 at Disneyland. Now, a lot of you young'uns don't know that, but downtown Disney was not part of the original plan. They built downtown Disney, and imagine what we're dealing with right here in northern Orange County with way more cars. I mean, it was like gridlock. You might as well just get on there and, I don't know, bring a snack, have a party in your car. You're literally going to sit there forever. And he was doing that two times a week. Um, the freeways were anything but free in those days, um, until one day we were traveling up there a few years after he graduated, and we all of a sudden realized, huh, what? we're just speeding by. What, what happened? You know, it's like it got accomplished. Everything is free and clear, and this is an amazing, wonderful thing. We're flowing past Disneyland like nobody's business. Hundreds of thousands of cars surrounding us, and we're all just charging up the freeway. It's amazing and wonderful. Um, but no one who lived through it thought that that just happened, you know? Because every day they were commuting or trying to get to their homes, they were crushed by the weight of the suffering that was happening on the I-5 there. <laughs> it was horrible. Worse than this. Much worse than this. But you know what? In all those years of misery, those people fully and completely understood that there were designers of that freeway reconstruction project. The designers had something in mind, and when it was through, when the plans were done, when the to-do list had been accomplished, the goal would be achieved, and it would be better than it was when they started. 
because there was a purpose they were shooting for. Well, Mike and I were reminiscing about those days and about Exodus, talking about this very message, and Mike said, let's not give more credibility to Caltrans than we do to God. You know, Caltrans had a plan, they were working. So does God. In whatever suffering, whatever Egypt you find yourself in today, he has a plan. So when you get stuck in that cosmic traffic jam of the Egypt of your life right now, you have a choice to make. You can wait well or not so well. I've got some suggestions, hopefully, to help you wait well. A, B, C, D, and E, for those of you who like my lists. First one. And this is going to sound insensitive when you're in trouble, but I don't mean it to be. I mean it sincerely. Letter A is be as positive as you can be. Be as positive as you can be. This one's all about perspective. Think about when you're stuck on the I-5 up there. You could roll down your windows, crank up your worship tunes, and sing to your heart's content, or you can fuss and fume and stomp your feet and say, this isn't fair. One is going to give you peace and perspective, and the other is just going to make the discouragement worse. So be as positive as you can be. The next one is remember you're not alone in it. You're in a cosmic traffic jam. There is person after person after person in car after car after car surrounding you. Many of them are suffering. Many of the people who surround you right now, even at your table, are suffering with something. It may not be exactly the same thing, but they know the feeling of pain and discouragement. In fact, some of them that are sitting in cars around you may have it worse. Maybe they have a screaming baby in the car with them. Maybe they have no air conditioning. Maybe they have to go to the bathroom really bad. <laughs> or maybe they're late to a really important meeting that's going to change their future, and they're stuck in the car next to you in traffic. They might have it worse than you, but you are surrounded by people who are also in pain. So remember, you're not alone. And going along with that one, if we're all wading through the same gunk, okay, not exactly the same, I get it, some are worse than others, letter C is wait together. I mean, wait together. If you're all going to be sitting in gunk, let's do it together. Don't isolate in your pain. That's what I mean by that. And I'm not saying you should... Um, Run out and have a party when you're in the worst, you know, fetal position kind of pain in your life. But I am saying when people reach out to you, which they will, if you keep coming here and you surround yourself with the people of God and you go to your small group and you actually let them know, even if you don't tell them everyone, you let them in on your pain, they will want to come into your life and help you. Part of waiting together is letting them do that. A lot of us go, no, 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 no. I'm in pain. You can't see me like this without makeup and crying. Okay, but don't worry about that. Wait together. Don't isolate when you're in pain and suffering. And remember, when you're not alone, you've got to think about things like even the DBR. When you read the DBR here, these are real stories about real people. Think about it that way. Wait with those people that went through those really hard times. 
wait with others outside of our Bibles, like um, those in church history. And I've got another book for you to go buy. It's called 50 People Every Christian Should Know. And I'm going to say it twice because there's a lot of numbers and Christian and people in these titles. So I'm going to say it again. It's 50 People Every Christian Should Know. It's by Warren Wiersbe. They can order it for you. Their copies may be gone already, but they can order it for you. It's full of stories of Christians who have gone before us. Not every one of them is suffering, but you're going to find, you, don't, you can wait together with people in your Bible, people in your small group, and people in church history. The next one. I need you to remember that just like we effortlessly fly past Disneyland now and Artesia and Valley View and all those streets up there, someday we're going to effortlessly fly past La Paz, too. (laughs) What I mean by that is letter D, know this will end. Know this will end. It will happen even if we have to wait a little longer. Someday the trouble will end and we will be better off because God is a much better designer than Caltrans. Now, I can't tell you when it's going to end for you. And I'm looking out at some of you, and I know the pain that you're in. For some of you, it will be sooner than later. But I can promise you this, it will end, even if it's the day that the trumpet sounds and the Lord descends. I don't think it will be that long for most of you, but maybe for a few it will, but it will end. And the last of the five is, um, no, God will never leave you. No, God will never leave you. I know you feel crushed right now and you feel like he somehow is just the absentee father. It's not true. It's not true. That is a lie from Satan. Don't believe it and don't listen to it. I know your heart has a hard time believing that, so I've got some objective truth for your head to tell your heart. Here's the objective truth. Psalm 77 19 and 20, I would beg you to root this truth into your heart by memorizing, meditating on it, saying it over and over. It's one of my favorite verses in suffering, and it takes a tiny bit of explanation. You're going to go, oh, I I don't see why this is her favorite. Bear with me for a second. It says, your way, God, was through the sea. Your path was through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Now, obviously, you can see he's talking about the Red Sea, but I'm going to read it for you again, and I want you to think about what it's saying. Your way, God, was through the sea, and your path was through the mighty waters, the walls of water walking through the Red Sea, but your footprints, they were unseen. There was no mud for them to track through, right? It was dry. Your footprints were not seen, but you led your people like a flock through the hand of Moses and Aaron. Just because you feel like he's not there doesn't mean he isn't. Just because you can't see his footprints doesn't mean he's not leading you. He was leading him through these two men, Moses and Aaron. God was not physically there going, see my footprints, follow along, it's me, God. No, he was entrusting these couple of men to lead them through. Even though the footprints were not seen, he was doing the leading. No matter how dark your path, don't forget 
but God is with you. He promised it. Matthew 28 says, lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. He's going to be with you. So expect bad things to happen to God's people, which leads me to point number two. <laughs> um, I'm going to have you write it, and I'm going to show you. I'm going to prove it to you, I promise, from the book of Exodus. Um, God said he's not going to leave you in your troubles. So point number two, we need to see that one of the most frequent avenues what get his help and his comfort through is point number two, see God's help through his people. Three, see God's help through his people. He may not physically come down and walk you through the Red Sea, but he sent people to help you walk through the Red Sea that you're walking in. Sometimes in our pain, it seems pretty bleak, but we are going to take God at his word that he's going to send people, even maybe the people who are sitting on either side of you right now might be the ones that are there to help you. Because frankly, in Exodus 1 and 2 right now, it is very dark and it does not look like God is helping them from their perspective. They're just sitting there enslaved. It's horrible. It doesn't look like it, but I'm going to prove to you that that was not the case. I'm going to show you the fingerprints of God all over these chapters. The first place that we can see God's help was, and there's actually, and this is not eight points. I'm just going to show you eight evidences that God was there, okay? This is not number one to eight. I just want to prove to you God was there, okay? Here's the first one, the midwives. That is the first proof that God was helping them through people, okay? That's in verse 15. Pharaoh commanded that all the baby boys be killed, but these women feared God more than the Pharaoh. And this is huge. We say that, and we go, oh, they feared God more than the Pharaoh. Do you realize how big this is? We don't even want to speak up at work because we might be looked at funny or whatever else these preposterous things that, that the world is telling us to do. We're afraid to say, you know, well, we don't believe in homosexuality because we're afraid what will happen. Okay, these women completely rebelled against Pharaoh's order. You know, God is kind of, well, frankly, he's abstract. He's not here. Pharaoh lived down the street and had a whole army that could have chopped their head off. This was humongous that these women would not do what he asked them to do. Talk about Luke 12, 5. That's that passage that says, don't fear those who can kill the body and after that can do nothing else. Fear him who, after he is killed, has authority to cast you into hell. These women are proof that God was helping his people in Exodus. And they would become national heroes. These are actually, and I think it was mentioned in your homework, they were two of only three people that are named in these two chapters, other than Moses. And there was a ton of characters in this chapter, but these two were named. And it wasn't like it was just like, here's Shifra, here's Pua. It was like, and here is Shifra, and here is Pua. That's how it's presented. God is introducing them to you. It's because they were courageous. They were sacrificial. They had a sense of justice, and he wanted you to remember them. So he made sure you knew their names because they were important. They did well. That's why God spared their lives and gave them children when they had none. It was a horrible stigma then that we don't experience today. We experience sadness, but it was, it was bad. These women were in a bad spot, and they would have no one to take care of them when they were older if they had no children, and God supplied for them. 
They thwarted the evil man's plans, and the entire population began to explode no matter what they did to try to stop it. Okay, here's another one. God used a Hebrew mom. Again, she's not named. You know her name, but she's not named here. A Hebrew mom who did not cower in the face of a national, aggressive policy of genocide. And that was in chapter 2, verse 1. She boldly hid her son for three months. That is hard. And she probably hid him from everyone. I mean, you can't have your next-door neighbor's baby get thrown in the Nile and yours, you're hiding, and, that, and they know it. She was hiding him from everyone. And then she makes him that boat, which is the same word for ark, right? And ark, we know what the ark did. The ark saved lives. So did this one. And it didn't just save one life. It saved a lot more than that in the work that God would do through Moses' life. She, um, you say to yourself, yeah, but she's the mom. Of course she's going to do that. Well, there's a death sentence attached to it. Uh, that, this would cost her her life if she was found out. And add to that, we don't see like hundreds of moms are just doing this. They're making boats and putting them on the Nile. No, this was unique. She took a risk. She was courageous. She was creative. And she saved the deliverer of them all. God also provided help through Moses' sister. That's in verse 4. She puts him in the reeds at the edge of the river, away from prying eyes so everybody walking by can't see him, but so he doesn't get caught in the rushing river there, but close enough so they would be in the path of the next avenue of help that God is going to send. And then later the sister would help come up with a plan to care for the baby. Now cue the crying baby and uh, God moving the heart of the daughter of the man who ordered the murder of every baby in the land. This is... Pharaoh is her dad. This is Pharaoh's daughter. And she hears the baby cry and she's moved with compassion. Um, she's, it says she feels sorry for him. But that isn't just about her feeling sorry. It's actually her prompted to act for him. And that's in point six, or excuse me, verse six. Talk about courage. Talk about com compassion. Talk about conviction. Pharaoh was her father. And yet she saves Moses. These three women, which is pretty interesting, they were so undervalued in their culture that they weren't even part of the killing. Think about it. They only killed baby boys. And yet these three women who were seen as no threat are the ones who saved his life, the one who would deliver everybody. And of course, the uh, daughter of Pharaoh was going to then take Moses into the palace to live under the nose of Pharaoh and be safe. No being thrown in the Nile for him. Talk about a protection plan. She was the perfect protection plan. Now, God also loved his people by providing him, Moses, with an education. That's the next way. He was raised in all the wisdom of Egypt, the Bible says. He was put under the most advanced intellectual minds. They were his tutors. And because of that, Moses would become Israel's secret weapon. Think of it. I mean, he's going to lead the opposition but he knows everything, he's going to lead the charge against the opposition, but he knows everything about them. He knows their procedures, he knows their plans, he knows the way they think, he knows their language, he knows their laws, he knows their culture, he knows everything about them because he's been educated in their land. And now he is poised to defeat, I don't know, was it his stepbrother, was it his stepcousin? But he's going to face this person at some point 80 years later. God supplied for his people again and again. 
Then God helped even through Moses' parents. We can see the influence that they have in his life. In the very limited time they actually had with Moses, you could still see the influence of his parents. Moses was a caring man. He had a clear sense of justice. Surely he must have learned that at their knee when he was a young child. Yes, Moses initially went to deliver them in the wrong way. We can all agree about that. But he was assertive, and he did fight injustice, and he was a man of compassion. And we can see all those things and how his parents influenced him. And I want you to see from that just how important it is. I mean, this has nothing to do with what we're talking about. But if you're a mom of littles, how important is it? I mean, you can tell from this example here to invest intentionally in your children when they're one, two, and three years old. I mean, this sets, this biblical instruction and submission to God's ways set this child on a path to seek him and live for him and give up all the riches of Egypt to be counted with God's people because of the few years he had in his parents' home. It's very important. Even if you think they don't get it, keep doing it. And then God also begins to work through Moses himself. Um, we know he did it wrong, but he did try, okay? He killed the taskmaster. Now, we think of that and we go, oh, he murdered. Okay, but if you read the passage, you realize he actually was defending his life, right? This guy was being beaten to death when Moses stepped in to save him. And he played peacemaker, and he defended Jethro's daughters, and then he gave them all the, watered the whole flock. I mean, Moses did a lot of good things. And that set everything up for Jethro to now care for Moses. And he needed some care at that point in his life. Jethro provided him with a wife, but he also provided him with a herd and with years of experience guiding unruly sheep. Do you think he needed that later? Yes. How about learning the threats and the dangers in the desert? Yes, right? And even experiencing some personal healing Moses needed some personal healing out there in the desert. He had murdered a man. He had been rejected by his people, and he was, had given up the life that he knew. He was demoralized, and Jethro was there for him, and God supplied for his man through Jethro. It's a familiar story, but I hope you can see through those eight things I just gave you all the ways that God helped even in this horrible time. His fingerprints are everywhere. Even though maybe they couldn't see it, you can because you're seeing it from a different vantage point. The midwives, Moses' mom, sister, Pharaoh's daughter, Jethro, his daughters, Moses' wife, they were all instruments in the hand of God. God did not save most of the people at this time, but he saved some who would end up saving them all. And I hope this view helps you also to see that they were ordinary people that he used. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 says that God uses ordinary people instead of the big, big shots, the spiritual celebrities. He uses regular people to do his work. And in our story, they're blue-collar workers. They're slaves. They're outcasts. They were not a threat to anyone, but they were also not an inspiration to anyone until now. They were just regular people that were available to be used. And they would work together to take down the most powerful empire in the world at that time. Just regular people. Well, God can use lots of things to help us in trouble. A song, a verse, maybe an appointment getting moved on your calendar, circumstances. But one of the sweetest things he always uses, the best gifts, is what comes through the people in your life. 
whether it's a call, a text, a visit, a treat on your driveway, someone to sit there at the hospital with you when we can get around COVID rules, right? God gives us the gift of people, and they are precious. When you get to experience the gift of people in your pain, thank God, of course, but also take a minute to bask in the contentment and the peace you're feeling. Let that overwhelm you. God has supplied for you. Feel how much he loves you through those people. And let it bolster your confidence on the dark days. Now, if anyone understood pain, it was the Apostle Paul. And in 2 Corinthians 1, if you are in pain, I would ask you to go sometime and read 2 Corinthians 1, the first half. Paul's going to talk a lot about a very intense time of pain in his life, so much so that he had suicidal thoughts. He never acted on them, of course, because that's murder. That is self-murder, and it was never okay with God. So he's not saying you should do that, but he was very despairing, and he goes to God in his pain, and God comforts him, but he also provides people to come into his life and to pray for him, and Paul gets brought out of that. And that puts us gets us all ready for a secondary application of this point. Yes, we need to see God's help through his people, but we also need to be God's help to people. You've got to put that down somewhere. You've got to be God's help to these people that are in suffering and in pain. You've got to be the tool that he takes out of the toolbox. You need to be willing. You need to be available. You need to be ready. Your brothers and sisters in Christ need help. You need to be Emilio, Right? I mean, yeah, I wasn't weeping in my coffee or anything, but he was, he was there to meet a need. Um, you got to follow through on the thoughts and the urgings and the promptings, as we call them, to go out and help others. You have no idea what the crushing weight of pain that that woman is dealing with that sits next to you at small group. But God does, and he sends you to find out and to help. Play a small part in helping people Keep their head above water in whatever Egypt they're facing. I was just talking to someone about this the other day and how often it happens where we find out someone's in trouble and we think, oh, I should go do whatever, fill in the blank. And then, I don't know, something happens. We get a phone call. We sit down to do our Bible study homework. Something happens and we forget. And we don't get to be the person that is the hands and feet of Christ for that sister. And we regret it. I could have done something. Yeah, I'm one person. I won't do it perfectly. But I could have done something. And I regret that I didn't follow through on that prompting. I didn't call that person. I didn't make the effort. I'm here to urge you, when you hear that prompting in your head, do it. I don't care if they have 20 people doing it. Be one of the 20. You don't know. Maybe you're the only one that followed through. So listen to the promptings that you get and act. And maybe God will use you to do something important, like he did in Exodus 1 and 2 with all these ordinary people. Now, God is always going to be a help in our trials. Psalm 46.1 says this. He is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. So now I'm talking to those of you that are in suffering or in pain. Don't despair. He helped Israel. He will help you. He helped Elijah and Job and Mary and Ruth and David and Daniel and Peter and Paul and John. And I mean, he helped all those people. He's going to help you too. He will. Don't despair. 
And when he does, keep track of what he's done. Even if all you can think of, maybe you can't do five minutes a day, maybe you can't do 10 minutes in your prayer journal, whatever. How about three things? Can you think of three things every day in the midst of your worst nightmare that God did to help you? Maybe on the worst day, you can only think of one thing. Well, write it down. Keep track of what God is doing to help you. It will encourage you the next day and the day after that. Well, now we have a sliver of hope because we can see the fingerprints of God all over this. Um, But we also have the benefit of knowing the whole story of Exodus, right? These people didn't know. They were actually living it day to day. They didn't know the traffic was going to get better at some point. Um, But this leaves us at Exodus 2, 23 to 25. So if you didn't have Exodus open till now, now is the time. This is our memory verse, and it's going to be the final lesson that we learn from Israel in bondage. Moses is out matriculating in the school of the desert, but the rest of the Israels are just sitting in captivity, horrible captivity. Verse 23, excuse me, 23 says, during those days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery, and they cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Hmm. Well, what prompted this declaration? It's a great one. He heard, he remembered, he saw, he knew. But what prompted them to say that? Well, this is the first time we actually see Israel pray. Now, am I saying they never prayed before this in captivity? No. But we don't have it recorded. I I don't know. But I can tell you that they're really laying it out here, right? They're groaning to him. They're wailing. They're weeping. They're laying it all out for God, how they're feeling about it. And uh, from this, you and I learn that we need to, number three, pray to your only hope. Pray to your only hope. That's where these people finally got. They got to praying to him as their only hope. The heat got turned up, and they ran to God. Another king had died, which was going to allow Moses to come back to Egypt. But, you know, I'm sure that those Israelites are sitting there every shift change, every new ruler, hoping that there's going to be some kind of relief. And there isn't. King after king after king, it's just bad. We don't know how long they've been actually enslaved at this point, but we know it's been a long time. Here's some reasons why we know that. One is because it was long enough time for the cities to be built. They built these vast cities while they were constructed. That takes a long time, a lot longer than widening the freeway to build a whole city, right? We also know that the midwives, their rebellion was somehow eventually discovered. Well, that takes a whole generation. You have to grow a group of baby boys to all of a sudden look at, you know, 20, 25-year-old people and go, wait, they should all be women. We have men and women here. They're not doing their job. That took years to figure out what they were doing. And then, of course, we have 40 years of Moses in Egypt and 40 years of him in Midian. This has been a really long time they've been enslaved, probably a few hundred years at this point. Now, in verse 23, it says they groaned. Groaning is moaning and even shrieking. The commentator said, it's shrieking as though you've had both your arms broken. That's what this word is like. It is that much intense pain. It's so intense that if you were to walk in the room, you would be uncomfortable watching your brother or sister go through it. That's what groaning is. And then they use the word cried out. That's the word wailing, weeping, or 
inarticulately just calling and crying out for help. You can't even put it into words, it's so bad. These people were passionately and emotionally praying to the only one who could make a difference. And then it some, says something very amazing. It says their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and he heard their groaning. He heard as in not just the, the bones vibrated in their ear, but he heard and he was moved to act. One writer said, prayer brings God to the situation. I thought that was good. And then it says in verse 24 that God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He remembered what he promised, and he began to make it happen. Now was the time to work on the being a nation and having a land and eventually being a blessing. Verse 25 says he saw the people of Israel. It was like he was leaning over the rails of heaven and looking down to see what was happening. And he wasn't just interested. He actually was more than that. He was sympathetic. That's what this word was when he saw them. He saw them sympathetically. And then, of course, it ends with God knew. God was intimately acquainted with them. Their pain was personal to him. This whole thing, God hears, remembers, sees, knows. It reminds me of this cool little tidbit about prayer in our Bibles. And I won't turn you there or whatever. I'll say it fast. But in Daniel 9, Daniel goes to pray. To, to, actually, he's reading the scripture. And he finds the 70 years prophecy and that they're going to be in exile for 70 years, which they're living through. And Daniel starts to pray. He confesses sin. He talks to God. He asks for things. And by the time he's done, Gabriel the angel shows up. And basically, verse 20 to 23 talks about Gabriel saying to him, when you started praying, a message went out, and I was sent here to talk to you. That is so cool. I mean, I'm not saying angels are going to show up in your prayer closet, but I mean that you pray and God actually hears you and responds, and he ends up telling Daniel about the future of Israel. Whoa. Psalm 34, 15 says it this way. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears are toward their cry. Psalm 34, 15. When we pray, we're not just filling the air. We're actually talking to the Lord God Almighty. And he knows it. And I'm assuming, if you're a real Christian here, that does for you what it does for me. It makes me want to pray more. If he actually is going to hear me, I want to get talking to him. If he actually is going to hear me and respond. Now, I know we pray. I'm not in any way saying that we don't pray when we're in pain. But we don't often pray like this. The way this is described here with the groaning and the moaning. We're not usually praying like that. We're not usually hanging out with God like that. More often than not, when we're in trouble, we rush into God's presence, we cry with him a minute or two, we ask for his help, and we leave. And we rush to Google, and we research the diagnosis. <laughs> or we pick up our phone, and we get a second opinion. Or we look for the homeopathic alternatives. Or if we're having financial trouble, we go look for a financial planner. And we check interest rates, and we find the best fiscal plan to get us out of our problem. Or we call up a girlfriend, or 20, so we can get their advice, which is very confusing, and uh, have a shoulder to cry on. Or we might even meet with a counselor or a pastor. 
Or if our parenting, we have rebellious teenagers, instead of doing the God-honoring, um, Scripture, Bible-promoting correction and direction that it says faithfully year after year after year and praying and praying and praying, we rush looking for the best newfangled parenting technique to make them do the right thing. Or worse yet, we rely on us. We rush out of our prayer closet and then we go, I'll just pull myself up by my bootstraps and I've got a plan and I've got my pro and con chart and I can do this. Um, I just want you to know that all those things are useful. And I and all of our pastors here would counsel you to probably do all those things. But God wants you to go to him first. God wants you to, to do all those things, but permeate it all with prayer, all the way through. Prayer is what you do first. Prayer is what you do most. Prayer is what you do continually. We need to go back to him again and again and again. And the word I'm thinking of as I prepare this over and over is the word linger. We need to linger with him until he says it's time to go, until he has given us a solution, till he has told us what to do, who to go to, until he's given us peace in our hearts instead of fear. Don't get that from your girlfriend. Get that from God. All those things are important, and I want you to do them all but I want you to spend a lot more time praying. Jesus prayed in the garden, and I think he gave us a great example and template. And, I mean, just by observation, there was a few different things that I see in Jesus. The first thing he was was all in. He was all in. Remember, he poured himself out. He was in trouble. He was in pain there in the garden before the crucifixion, and he was all in, so much so that he was sweating. It seemed like drops of blood. He also prayed again and again and again and again that night, and it wasn't the only time he did that. And from that, we learned that he kept at it. He prayed entire nights in the Gospels. He prayed when it was still dark out early in the morning. He kept at prayer. My question is for us, when was the last time we did that? When was the last time we actually went to God like he was all we had like he was our only hope. And the last thing I see Jesus doing in the garden is that he was deferential. He was deferential. Um, that means he went to God and he said, not my will, but yours be done. We need to speak to God with respect, sharing our pain and asking for help. He's our only hope. But don't insult him by poking your head in the door and then going someplace else for the real solution, right? I'm gonna just talk to him, but then I'm gonna go someplace else. Psalm 20, verse 7 says, some trust in chariots and some in horses or other solutions, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Wherever you find yourself today in your Egypt, you need to run to your prayer closet and you need to stay there until, like I said, God leads you out. 1 Peter 5 says that we cast our anxieties on him because he cares for us. Cry out to him or be silent, lay down, kneel, stand up, whatever it takes, but Tell him how hopeless you are. Ask for his help and linger there until you are fearless and saturate 
all the parts of your decision-making and all the troubles that you have with prayer so that it's like a sponge full of water that's just dripping out. There's so much prayer to it. Psalm 56, 3 and 4 says, When I'm afraid, I put my trust in you, in God whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? And for those of you who are not in trouble right now, I would ask you to pray anyway. Make prayer something you do that's so much a part of your life that it's your regular pattern so that when the day of trouble comes to you, you will know the way to God's doorstep because you're so used to praying. And we have updated prayer journal for you on the you know, website, compasswomen.org. We've updated it. It's at the bottom of the page if you want to get on that. Or if you want to buy one in the bookstore, we have an updated hard copy that you can buy. But if you're not in trouble today, that'll help you organize your prayers and get you praying as a regular pattern of your life. So when the day comes you need him like this, you will already trust him. You will have seen him do so much, you'll be depending on him already when the time comes and you need to pray like he's your only hope. Now, we began our study in Exodus today by singing a really powerful song, which I asked the worship teams to sing. Um, it's such a great song, but it reminds us that no matter how dark the day, God has not abandoned us and is only a prayer away. I'm going to read it to you. I'm going to ask you right now to do nothing but close your eyes. It's not the time to do your workbook, notebook, whatever. Just close your eyes. We're gonna, I'm going to read to you the lyrics of the powerful song, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. And we're going to make it the commitment of our heart. What a friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Have we trials and temptations? Is there trouble anywhere? We should never be discouraged. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Can we find a friend so faithful who will all our sorrow share? Jesus knows our every weakness. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Are we weak and heavy laden, cumbered with a load of care? Precious Savior, still our refuge. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Do your friends despise and forsake you? Take it to the Lord in prayer. In his arms, he'll take and shield you. You will find a solace there. Blessed Savior, thou hast promised, thou wilt all our burdens bear. May we ever, Lord, be bringing all to thee in earnest prayer. Soon in glory bright unclouded, there will be no need for prayer. Rapture, praise, and endless worship will be our sweet portion there. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you for the powerful story in Exodus 1 and 2 and your faithfulness to these people and how you've proved to us that you will never abandon us even on our darkest days. In Jesus' name. Amen.